Welcome to today's edition of Enjoying the Bible Podcast. Hi, I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And it's my desire for this podcast to help us to know and enjoy God's Word so much that we find it easier to apply God's Word to our lives and to our thinking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I hope you're ready uh, to get started. Let's get going. Today's reading for January the 2nd is Genesis 4, 5, and 6, and Matthew chapter 2. That's Genesis 4 through 6, and Matthew chapter 2. Now, one of the things I want to encourage you to to seriously consider is while I hope and pray that this podcast is beneficial to you as I summarize the chapters and as I highlight some things that I think are of importance devotionally, or theologically, or they're misunderstood, or any number of other things, nothing that I will say is as good as you spending your time alone in God's Word. So make sure you are reading God's Word. Don't just listen to this podcast. Uh, If you have one or the other, I would encourage you just to read God's Word. Uh, What I want to do is come alongside that time and help you to understand it even more. So let's look at Genesis chapter 4. What we see in Genesis chapter 4 is what happens as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. The very first thing that begins to happen. Adam and Eve, by themselves, in the world, alone, um, commit an offense. They disobey God. Therefore, it is no longer a perfect paradise. Now they are sinful, living in a cursed world. It plays out with their kids. And so we see in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, that uh, they have their first child. His name is Cain. And then he has, they have their second child in verse 2, and his name is Abel. And then in verses 3 through 5, we see that they are offering uh, sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, Abel is apparently a shepherd, and so he's offering the firstborn of the flock. He's offering the best, what's considered the best, the firstborn, the first fruits. And Cain apparently is a farmer or uh, a gardener, and he's offering vegetables. Well, we learn that uh, you know God is is pleased with Abel's offering and not pleased with Cain's, and so we may suspect okay, maybe it's the content. Maybe it was because Cain was offering vegetables rather than um, a sheep. Um, And I don't believe that that is true. Uh, Because later on, whenever we get into the the law on worship and offerings, we're going to realize that there's such a thing as a grain offering, a flower offering. And so I don't believe that, uh, you know, as God is going to subscribe offerings that are not animal sacrifices, I don't think that uh, Cain's sin was the fact that he was offering up vegetables. I think that we get a clue whenever God was speaking with Cain in verses 6 and 7 that there was sin that was crouching at Cain's door. It was crouching at his heart. There was sin that was was there, and uh, God was telling uh, Cain, that you better get mastery over it because its desire is to master you. And so I don't think it was the content of the offerings, the sacrifices. I think it was the hard attitude 
that Abel had a hard attitude that loved his God and was worshiping his God as he sacrificed to his God, Cain, we're not sure, was he apathetic toward God? Was he doing it reluctantly or did he have some sin that he was tolerating while he was going through acts of worship? We don't know. But God was making it very clear that he appreciated Abel's offering and did not like Cain's, and it was done in such a way that Cain understood. And so we read that uh, in verses 6 and 7 that there was sin, and then verses 8, Cain kills Abel. He kills him um, because he's jealous of the fact that God appreciated Abel more than him. And then in verse 9, God uh, confronts Cain. And what we see at the end of verse 9 when Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guardian? We not only see that a murder has happened, but we see that his heart is calloused. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. We've gone from paradise, in one generation we've gone from paradise to a world where people are capable of killing their own family and not caring. And so then, uh, verses 10 through 16, God places a curse on Cain, uh, but Cain is saying, hey, this is too great a penalty for me. Well, he just killed his brother, and now he's complaining about an offense that he's got a curse on him. And then God promises that uh, God will bring vengeance on whoever kills Cain. And so, basically, Cain is not to be touched. No one is to kill him that finds him. God cursed him, going to make things difficult for him, but God then protected him. So then we get to verses 17 through 22, and uh, we see that Cain's descendants are increasing. He has kids, they have kids, they have kids. Then we get to verses 23 and 24, and we come across one of his descendants, and one of his descendants is named Lamech. And listen to verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man. This is Lamech. This is not Cain killing Abel. This is his descendant, one of his descendants. I killed a man for wounding me. So someone hurt him, hit him, whatever, they wounded him, and he killed him. That was overkill. A young man for striking me, so some young man hit him, struck him, and he killed him too. And what we see in verse 24 is him presuming upon God's grace. He says in verse 24, if Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times Lamech is saying, hey, you know, if God protected a murderer, if God protected Cain and and, uh, said that nothing could happen to him or God would exercise vengeance on that person, then God's certainly going to do the same for me. And so Lamech had developed an attitude where he was mocking God's justice, presuming upon God's grace. We see that only a few generations away from paradise, mankind is into sin and calloused about it and presuming upon a just God's grace. Well, then we see something positive. At the end of verse 4, we see that Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. And at the end of verse 26, it says, At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. 
I'm telling you, that is a breath of fresh air because chapter 3 is the, the chapter of the curse. Chapter 4, we see what happens in a world that is cursed where people are killing each other and callous toward it and presuming upon God's grace. And it's spiraling morally out of control. And so the end of verse 4 is a breath of fresh air. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Let me ask you, are, are you calling on the name of the Lord? Are you enjoying Him? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you reading His Word and listening to what He's saying to you? Let me tell you that that is the only hope for humanity. In order for us believers to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, we have got to pursue a walk with the Lord. We have got to call on His name and refuse to follow the trend of a world that is rebelling against God. All right, so let's spend a few moments in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy, and by that we simply mean that it is a list of people who gave birth to other people who gave birth to other people, and this happens periodically in the Old Testament, even it happens uh, a couple of times in the New Testament. Uh, we saw yesterday in Matthew chapter 1 that there was the genealogy um, that led to Joseph. And so I just want to spend a few moments looking at this genealogy. Um, a few things I want to bring out. The first thing is I want you to notice in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, that there's, I believe, something very significant. It says, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. So this is the genealogy of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, we, we know that because we read that yesterday in Genesis 1. Let us create man in our image after our likeness, God said. And so we read here, once again in Genesis 5, On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So Adam and Eve were created in the likeness of God. They had a very firm stamp of God's image on them. But look at verse 3, Genesis 5, 3. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image. Oh, so now all of a sudden, Seth and Cain and Abel and all of their other sons and daughters, and by the way, that is who they married. They married brothers and sisters until the population grew and then, you know, the relationships were farther out. But when we see in chapter 5, verse 3, that when Adam had a son or had a child, they were not in the image of God. They were in the image of Adam. Now, what does that mean? That means that Adam and Eve, when they were created in the image of God, they were not God. They were humans. They were created beings. They were not God, but they had God's stamp of approval on them. They, they were created in uh, perfection. Uh, they were created without sin. They were created with a desire for relationship, and God has existed forever in relationship in the person of the Trinity. They were created with emotion that's in the image of God. I mean, they were created with not only responsibility, but a desire to steward what is under their authority, as God told Adam and Eve, to rule over the earth. That means take care of it. Take care of it. Um, and so they were created in the image of 
God, Adam and Eve were. But then when Adam had a child, his children were created in his image. What does that mean? That means that when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not had not just committed a sin, they became sinners. And so when Adam and Eve had children, they gave birth to sinners. Did you know that people are born sinners even before they commit their first sin? That's what the Bible teaches us over and over and over. It makes it clear that uh, we don't become sinners when we commit our first sin. No, that's not it. We are born sinners, and that's why we sin, because we are in the flawed image of Adam. We still, to some extent, bear the image of God, but it's flawed by Adam's sin. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, I want you to also notice in this text, in uh, chapter 5, that we see people living hundreds of years. I mean, it's, it's like, um, I mean, they lived 800 years, 900 years. If somebody lived only 600 years, we would wonder, you know, why, why they die so young. Um, and, but then when you look at the genealogies and the ages at which people die after the flood, I think there is something to be said for the fact that on day two of creation, when God separated the water, the, the water canopy around the earth, and then the water that was on the earth, that water canopy above the earth, I, I wonder if it created something of a greenhouse effect or something like that, protecting humanity from the sun's radiation, harmful rays. And I wonder if that explains, but all we know is, is that people were living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the flood, but after the flood, they started dying much earlier, or, you know, around our age, the age that people today die. I think something at the flood happened. I think it was that water canopy that protected the earth that allowed these people to live. Now, a couple of other things. Uh, one is if you look at verses 21 through 24, we come across a guy named Enoch. I just think that is so special. I've got this underlined in my Bible. Two times it says, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. What does that mean? It means he just enjoyed him. <laughs> he enjoyed his God. He spoke with his God. He lived with a conscious awareness that God was with him. He enjoyed the moments of his day with God. And it wasn't that he just walked with God. And, 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 and what we get in this language is that it meant something to the Lord as well, that the Lord walked with Enoch. And in fact, we read in verse 24 that Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. It's as if God said, you know what, I'm enjoying you so much, Enoch, that, uh, you know, God went on and took him to heaven. And in fact, his lifespan, everybody else is living to 700, 800, 900 years. Enoch, according to verse 23, only lived 365 years because God took him. God took him early. Why, I think? Because God was enjoying Enoch. Once again, walk with God. Enjoy a relationship with him. One other thing that I'll mention in chapter 5 is that if you add up all of these years, then uh, you come up with about a thousand years. It's almost exactly a thousand years from Adam to when Noah was born. 
and so uh, you've got about a thousand years. Once again, we as Christians do not believe that God created things or that evolution started things millions of years ago. We believe that Adam and Eve were created a matter of thousands of years ago, maybe six to ten thousand years ago. And one of the places we go to is Genesis 5, from Adam to the flood, about a thousand years. That was it. Okay, so we get to Genesis chapter 6 now. Uh, one of the things that we observe in this chapter, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is one of the most highly debated texts in Scripture. Um, and it's, re it's in regard to who are the sons of God. Because it says in chapter 6, verse 1, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them. So this is the fulfillment of God's promise. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's what's going on. But we realize it's being done in the wrong way because verse 2 says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. So what's going on? Something about verse 2, The sons of God saw the daughters of mankind. Something about that caused God to say, Enough, I'm going to move to destroy the earth. What is that? Well, I think the debate, and, and roughly the debate has come to be, what, Who are the sons of God? Some have said that the sons of God is used to describe the godly line, maybe the line from Seth, those who are seeking the Lord, those who are walking with the Lord, that those who are walking with the Lord are mingling with those who have nothing to do with the Lord. Maybe that's what it is. Sons of God, the godly people, saw that the daughters of mankind, the sinful people, were beautiful and they took them and chose them as wise for themselves. Maybe that's what that's referring to. I think... A more plausible view, though, is to take the phrase sons of God and look in other places in the Old Testament to find out where that is used. One of the places it's used is in Job chapter 1. And in Job chapter 1, sons of God seems to be referring to angels. Sons of God seems to be referring to angels. It's not that they are sons of God as Jesus is the Son of God. It's simply a phrase that's meaning that they come from Him. God created angels. But even more specifically, if this is what's going on, then you wouldn't think that the godly angels are the ones that are procreating with mankind because they're obedient to God, and this is not God's plan. God's plan was for a human to have relations with another human, a man with a woman, and then to have children. So sons of God would seem to speak of the, a demonic influence of demons that are inhabiting the bodies of people and having relations with other humans, and so you have a demonic sort of thing going on. I think that's really what's being talked about here. And God is saying, you know what, I'm just going to destroy everything. I'm just going to destroy everything and start over. And so, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 22, we see God's plan to destroy everything with a worldwide flood. God makes it clear in chapter 6, I'm going to destroy everything. Roughly a thousand years into creation, God's ready to destroy it all. I want to draw your attention 
to verse 6. Genesis 6, verse 6. And just kind of touch on something, just to kind of clear this up. In verse 6, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Now, when we read that, we think, what? (laughs) The Lord regretted? I mean, if I regret something, that means that I made a decision, or I did something, and then I later on see that, ooh, that didn't turn out like I thought it was going to turn out, and I regret it, and then I change a course of action. Well, that would imply within me that I don't know all things, and that would imply within me that I'm not in control of all things. If we're not careful, we will take that and apply that to God and say that, oh, it says the Lord regretted, therefore the Lord does not know all things and is not in control of all things, and that is not true. So how are we to understand that it says the Lord regretted? Well, this is a big word, but I'm going to share it with you. Uh, There is something called anthropopathisms in Scripture. And simply put, what that is, anthropopathisms, is it is ascribing to God emotions that are true of us. It's, it's just, God is, God's ways are so higher than us, he is, he is not like us in just about any way at all. He's so far above us. But in order for us to understand him, we've got to talk on terms that we understand. And so, anthropopathisms is ascribing to God things that we understand about ourselves. And so as Moses was being moved by the Holy Spirit to write this, he used the word regret to express the frustration that God had, the, 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 how, how God was angered, and how God was ready to do something drastic. But one of the things we must not hear in this is that when God regrets that he ever thinks, oh, I didn't see that coming, or oh, I'm not in control enough, and, you know, things are happening, and I just have to respond. That is not the way that God God is presented in the Bible. When it says that God regretted, it just tells us that God was deeply moved, God was broken, God was angered, but it does not mean regret like we mean regret. It is, it is used simply so that we can kind of understand what God was experiencing, but God was experiencing it in a way where he was feeling an emotion of some sort, yet he is fully in control, and this did not take him by surprise. And so whenever you see the word regret or some words, some translations use the word repent, just be very cautious because that is a word that is used of us that is being ascribed to God, but realize that God is is not like us. And, And so that's why those words are used of him is it means that God experiences something like that, but honestly, we cannot fully understand how God was feeling and experiencing that. And that's just the best way to describe it. All right, so the last passage we're going to look at for today is Matthew chapter 2. Now, um, you're very familiar with this passage, so almost certainly as you've read this, uh, you read and understood about the, the wise men showing up and Herod asking about where is this one who's born king of the Jews, and he found out that it was Bethlehem. Um, and so the wise men went to, to worship uh, Jesus. Um, 
then they were warned in a dream to go another way, uh, to, to not go back toward Herod. Herod hears about this. He flies into a rage. Um, Joseph is warned, you better get out of here. You need to go to Egypt uh, for protection. And uh, then Herod moves to kill in and around Bethlehem all of the boys two years of age and younger. And then finally, after Herod dies, uh, sometime later, God gets with Joseph uh, through a vision again and tells him that he can go back. And so he goes back and he actually settles in Nazareth. Now, that's the gist of Matthew chapter 2. But I want to highlight uh, a few points in this, in this passage as well. One of the things I want to point out is how Matthew, in his gospel, is liberally quoting from the Old Testament liberally quoting from the Old Testament. As we read um, that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, that uh, the, the, the scribes were asked by Herod, you know, hey, where is he to be born? They quote out of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They, Matthew quoted them as referring back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So he quotes the Old Testament, and he, he did that a few times in chapter 1 as well. Then, when you get to the slaughter of the, the boys, two years and younger, in Bethlehem, Matthew there uh, quotes another passage. He quotes um, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And so you read about that and realize that Matthew is seeing all sorts of things in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus that are fulfilled in Jesus. And in fact, I skipped over one. Um, if you go back to verse 15, Matthew also quotes out of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, because Jesus, as a little boy, was taken to, uh, taken to Egypt with Joseph and Mary. Matthew saw a fulfillment of, of an Old Testament prophecy there. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. I just want you to know that when you are reading the Old Testament, and as we get go through the Old Testament, one of the things I'm going to do on this podcast is I'm going to show you many of the places where Jesus clearly showed up in the Old Testament. There are many places in Genesis where Jesus shows up, and I'm going to show that to you, and I'm going to encourage you to get into God's Word to see it. But also want you to realize that even in those places where we do not see Jesus showing up, like on the plains of Mamre and you know the fourth person in the fiery furnace and many other places in the Old Testament, that even still there are so many things in the Old Testament in every book that point to Jesus that really the Old Testament, it's not just the New Testament, the Old Testament points to Jesus. And in fact, I love the, the story at the end of the Gospel of Luke, as the day that Jesus rose from the dead, there were two disciples that were on their way to Emmaus. And Jesus shows up and it says that he concealed their eyes so that they did not recognize him. And he, asks the, he asked them um, what they were talking about. And they were surprised, you know, saying, hey, if you were, you're the only one that hadn't heard what happened in Jerusalem, that Jesus... Uh, apparently, has the the grave is empty, and we don't know what's happened. There's there's rumor that he's been risen from the dead, 
and it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them all of the things concerning himself. And so that passage tells us that Jesus, on that walk to Emmaus from Jerusalem on Resurrection Day, Jesus went through the Old Testament and pointed to all of the things concerning him. I'm telling you, the Old Testament speaks liberally about Jesus. And the the arrow is pointing to the Gospels in the Old Testament. I just want you to know that as you see, like in my translation, the Old Testament quotes are in black and bold. Uh, I want you to know that Matthew sees in the Old Testament what Jesus himself saw in the Old Testament, that Jesus is the fulfillment that they spoke liberally of Jesus in the Old Testament about him. And uh, so there's uh, some other things that uh, we can look at in uh, the Gospel of Uh, Matthew chapter 2, but uh, I'll just leave that to you. If you've got any questions or comments, feel free to go to the Facebook group page and post your questions or comments, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in your word you have revealed yourself to us that in your word you help us to understand why this world is messed up, that it's because of sin, but also we see that the story does not end there, but you and your grace sent yourself in the person of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, to come to earth to ultimately die on a cross and rise from the dead to forgive, to save, to declare righteous anyone who will put their trust in you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that as we continue our adventure of getting into your word, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things, not so that we can just learn it, but so that it can change the way we think, so that it changes the way we act, and that your Holy Spirit would be able to use the sword of your word in our life to make us more like you, Jesus. This is our desire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed our time together today. If you think this podcast has been helpful to you and could be helpful to others, please feel free to share this podcast with others. You can do so on social media, by word of mouth. You can even go to where it is that you get this podcast and post a review underneath it, and that makes it a little bit easier for people to find this. I'm sure looking forward to spending time with you tomorrow and looking at your questions and comments on our Facebook page. So we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.